0: When we approach the third chapter of the Epistle to the Colossians in the course of our study, instead of plunging right into the question of the reference there about the manifestation in glory, we turn aside to consider the second coming of Christ from a broader basis. We took the opportunity of considering that there were three spheres of blessing, at least, mentioned in the Scriptures. There is the earth, most certainly a part of God's purpose, to be visited once again with salvation and with the Saviour. And there was the heavenly aspect of that calling, which we associate more particularly with Abraham than we do with David, that Christ is revealed, you remember, as the son of David and the son of Abraham, and the promises to both of those patriarchs are to be fully uh, fulfilled and completed when Christ takes to himself his power and reigns. And then, of course, the third sphere, where we are considering the teaching of Colossians uh, in the association with a mystery and the position far above all. Well now, most of you know that these the subjects have been made a, a matter of recording and these subjects which I've just run over are already uh, for the listener. Also, there will be provided, with those who take the tape or the uh, gramophone record, uh, something similar to the chart that we use at these meetings. As you will remember that last time, we exhibited the whole of the New Testament with the exception of Paul's prison ministry. We had the seven epistles of Paul that were written during the Acts and the seven epistles of those of the circumcision, Peter, James, John, and Jude, which gave us the heavenly phase of the uh, hope that belonged to the promises made to the fathers and was running out during the Acts of the Apostles. But there was a part of that which was hidden, but is now been revealed. So the chart now exhibits, in between these two sections, the Ministry of Paul, and the Ministry of the Circumcision, it puts the Ministry of Paul the prisoner. It focuses our attention upon a fact that there came, speaking humanly, a break in the outworking of God's purpose. The people of Israel were called upon to repent, and they failed. And they ultimately were set aside, they went out into their blindness, they became, lo, army, me, not my people. The hope of Israel naturally went with them. Their covenants and promises were more or less uh, rendered obsolete for the time being. And God revealed that he had another phase of his purpose when Paul became a prisoner and received this parenthetical dispensation of the mystery. So now we're back again. We know we started with Colossians chapter 3. It might be well for us to remember that there's hardly a reference in the New Testament to the second coming of Christ which is introduced into the scriptures on purpose to teach that second coming. It nearly always comes in, in connection with something else. Take for instance 1 Thessalonians 4. The apostle didn't say, Oh, by the way, I must speak about the second coming. He said, I would not have you sorrow as those who have no hope, and introduced the second coming, like that. And when we were reading 2nd Timothy just now, he mentions the appearing of our Saviour to stimulate faithfulness, even in days when they will turn away their ears from the truth. And when he wrote to Titus about the blessed hope and the appearing, it was in a very, very practical context speaking about the way in which even servants could adorn the doctrine of God their Saviour in all things. And so, when we approach Colossians chapter 3, we approach it via chapter 2. And chapter 2 is all to do with a false process that was bringing about a false understanding of what true sanctification is. He ends up by simply neglecting the body. And then in chapter 3, he turns our attention to where Christ sits and ends up by saying, mortify your members which are upon the earth. Now the word mortify occurs in Romans the fourth chapter, when it's dealing with the Abraham. Abraham certainly didn't kill himself. He didn't put himself to death, but he looked at himself up and down and he reckoned he was as good as dead. Well, that's what the apostle says you do. He doesn't say, neglect your body and go through all these things to try to make yourself sanctified. He says, don't you realize that the whole work has been done, and if you can only stand where God has placed you, you reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God? And he brings us to bear, in Colossians chapter 2, when he asks the question, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why are you, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? Well, now he takes one more step in Colossians 3, and he says not merely if ye be dead but if ye then be risen if ye then be risen with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God I want to pause here for a moment because there is an attempt on the Father's Son to explain away the word heavenly places perfectly true there is no word for places when you read the expression in the original. It's the word "heavenly." But on the other hand, the word where demands a place. You can't be thinking somewhere without it being a place. So we're back again. This is not only a vague sort of spiritualizing. Christ is somewhere. And that somewhere it is at the right hand of God. Far above all principality and power. And he says, you see, Your greatest power to live to the glory of God down here is to be entirely occupied with where Christ sits up there. That's practical politics. That's true sanctification. Not flogging yourself or neglecting yourself, but reckoning what God has reckoned, that when Christ died, he reckoned that you died. And so completely did you die that when Christ was buried, you will reckoned to be buried with him. And then comes the move upwards, quickened with him, raised with him, potentially now because of our high calling, seated with him. And ultimately, when the blessed hope is realized, to be manifested with him. Not in Jerusalem on the earth, not on the mount of Odis, not even in the streets of the new Jerusalem but far above all where Christ sits at the right hand of God. So you see, we've now reached the climax of this teaching concerning the second coming of Christ. If anyone is at all doubtful about this association of the believer with Christ in all this reckoning, well, it's necessary that you should go back and most carefully and prayerfully study the teaching of Romans chapter 6. Otherwise, you'll have no foundation for this wonderful hope that is now being erected. For he assumes, when he puts the word if, he's assuming that this is true. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. I wonder why it emphasizes the right hand of God so. Will you remember that over and over again, especially in the epistle to the Hebrews, which is very emphatic on this point, it stresses two things. That the right hand of God is not in any holiest of all or tabernacle made by hands down here. As he put in the uh, 8th chapter of Hebrews, he said, The things which we have spoken, this is the sum. I'll sum it up for you. We have a seated priest in a heavenly sanctuary. So it's where Christ, not where Christ stands at the right hand of God, but where Christ sits. And again we borrow from the epistle to the Hebrews to understand the importance of a seated priest. I think it's important enough for us to turn and read for ourselves what the Apostle insists in the um, 10th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. He says in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 10, and every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Notice those words. He stands. He does it daily. He offers the same sacrifices, and the one thing they never do is to take away sins. Now in contrast, but this man, turning away from all these priests, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down. Sat down. He's the only priest in the whole teaching of the Word of God that ever sat down in connection with his ministry. I don't say the four priests who were descended from here and never sat down at all. But there was no provision made for a seated priest in the whole of the Mosaic law. Their work was never done. It was never effective. It was only a type for the shadow. So here we have then blessed reality. Christ may not be our high priest. He may be more to us than ever a high priest could be for he is the head over all things. But the one thing which is still true, gloriously true, is that he, the seated one, gathers up into himself all that has ever been said about the work of salvation, and now we see it's accepted and it's completed forever. The seated one at the right hand. Then again, with regard to the right hand, if you study the Old Testament scriptures, you find that the right hand is often where the accuser stands, in the law court. The accuser. So he gives point to the apostles' glorious triumph and end of Romans, the 8th chapter. Or when he says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ that died? He ain't rather that he's risen again and he hasn't stopped yet. Oh no. But he goes on. Who is even at the right hand of God? His point is, when at last I stand before that throne and I look to the place where the accuser might be, I shall have no fear and dread, for I shall look into the face of the one who took my place. I put the accuser out of court. We died with him, we raised with him, we seated with him, and one day we're going to be with him and we're going to be like him. And here's a point that I think I mentioned before, but it's worth mentioning again. In the first division of John, he admits that we do not know what we shall be, but when he shall appear, we shall be like him, and he has this reason, for we shall see him as he is. Now that is true of each sphere of blessing. When every eye shall see him that are on the earth, they won't see him as he now is at the right hand of God. Each one will see him as fits the sphere of their blessing and their particular calling. But ultimately, whatever phase and aspect it may be, it comes to this glorious fact, that God has predestinated that all those who believe in his beloved Son will one day be conformed unto his image. The particular aspect of the image that belongs to the church of the one body is given us at the end of Philippians chapter 3, when it says that our citizenship, as the word conversation implies, is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Saviour, who shall change this body of our humiliation, not a vile body in the modern sense. It's the humiliated body, Who shall change this body of our humiliation that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory. What a position. What a hope. To exchange this body of humiliation that it may be fashioned like unto his body of glory. And so he adds. And he's going to do that because he has all the power necessary. So here we are approaching this highest aspect of the second coming of Christ. I think we ought to remember too that arising out of this um, fact that Christ is at the right hand of God there is an element of stability. I take just these words from the Acts of the Apostles I shouldn't bother to turn because by the time you find the passage I should have left it. This is what it reads Acts of the Apostles 2.25 For David speaking concerning him said, I foresaw the Lord all the way before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. You see, if you do believe that Christ is at the right hand of God, and he constitutes your blessed hope, will it be like an anchor for you? I shall not be moved. Well, now I think we must go on. The next statement in Colossians, chapter 3, is not merely to seek those things which are above, but to set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. You seek, and you set. You seek first, and then when you find the right place, you set your affection there. Now, these two things, as it were, link and anchor us to the risen, ascended, and seated Christ. The word affection is not exactly a translation that we should use today because of the meaning of the word affection. This particular word provides us with the uh, word phrenology. And uh, it doesn't mean to say you've got to go and have your bunch drive or something first. But it means... You know when you, in the old days, when people were going to the phrenologist to have their bumps felt, he told them their peculiar characteristics. He said, now, you will make a success in life as whatever it might be, you see. So the word phrenology, all this word phren, which we have as the basis of it, could be rendered something like this. Your bet. You know, one person has a bet for languages. Another has a bet the music. And the Apostle says to you and me, I wonder what your bent is. Is it obvious to those who know you, that you're taken up, you're completely obsessed, you're occupied with a risen, ascended Christ? Oh friends, is that true? Or do they complain about us having all sorts of other things that occupy so much of our time? Is our bent manifested to those who know us, that whatever else we are, and whatever else we do, There is one that fills our vision and occupies our hearts and one with whom we long eventually to be. Set your affection, your mind, not on things on the earth, but where Christ is. Now, we could turn aside from this and go to the epistle to the Philippians and we should discover there's a whole series of passages there where we have the minding Not only of the things above, but the minding of the things on the earth. So just for a moment, without going through all the references, let us take one or two as a sample. (coughs) First of all, Philippians chapter 2, in connection with this mind. It says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. And uh, although we've said this before, i remind you that that isn't quite what the Apostle said. He doesn't say we've got to tell lies to our own selves and say somebody else is a better man than I am, because that's always true. But what he actually said is, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. He didn't think I was better than he was. But nevertheless, he undertook my case. And so, I render <coughs> the end of verse 3. Let each esteem the affairs of others of more importance than their own. That's the mind that was in Christ. He stooped for my sake, but he didn't think I was better. But nevertheless, he laid aside the glory on my account. So he says in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then to step over into chapter 3, we have the opposite. We have the warning. (coughs) He says in verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. Here's the contrast. He says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. These are minding earthly things. And so, in contrast, he's back again for our conversation. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence we look for a saviour. So, he's approached the same line of truth by rather a different pathway. <coughs> well, now, we want to get a little bit nearer to the question of the second coming as it uh, deals, as it is dealt with by the Apostle in Colossians 3, and particularly applying to the Church of the Mystery. He goes on in verse 3 to say, For ye are dead, which would be better translated, For ye died. Ye are dead is rather a saddening way of putting it. But that you died, leaves it open for the idea that you may now be risen again. And that's what he means. For ye died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. <clears throat> Wherever we're looking at chapter 2, we noticed that the attack of the evil one was directed to your reward, to beguile you of your reward. We read in the scriptures, let no man take your crown. But we never read in the scriptures, let no man rob you of your life. Let it be God, that's not touchable. Even in the days of Job, when Satan challenged God with regard to Job. He said to to Satan, you may touch that man's health, you may touch his body, you may touch his family, you may touch his possessions, but you must not touch his life. And that's as true today as ever. Friends, be pleased ever to make a distinction between that which is the gift of God that you can never merit and you can never lose. Your life is never in question. It's only the things that accompany salvation that you are warned about. So in chapter 1, you may be spoiled and you may be beguiled of your reward, but our enemy knows enough truth not to waste his time in trying to break into the most wonderful safe deposit that heaven or earth or hell. And where's that? Hid with Christ in God. But there's another side to this story. If my life is hid with Christ in God, I don't see how it's possible for me to have it as a personal possession at this present moment. It is hid with Christ in God absolutely safe. If I've got the handling of it now, well, I'm I'm more or less in jeopardy all the time. All I know the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. Yes, that's true. But he hasn't yet entrusted me with immortality and eternal life. It's mine. Just as surely as I may have some money in the bank, you may come up to me and say, uh, I understand that you have a uh, deposit at Barclays Bank. I said yes, quite right, friend. Well, can you lend me five pounds? I said, oh well, I only got about five shillings with me. But I thought you had, f- I thought you had a few hundred pounds in the bank. So I may have, but I haven't got them here. It he doesn't order the fact. So God has put this life which He has given me at the cost of His beloved Son's death, oh, and burial. He's put it in that safe deposit and it will not be entered until this mortal shall put on immortality, and mortality shall be swallowed up of light. uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1 speaks about the appearing of Christ in connection with that subject of immortality. So having touched upon it, should we go over to 2 Timothy chapter 1? Because here we have one of the passages where we have this appearing uh, mentioned. 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9, Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light. Through the gospel, whereunto I am appointed a preacher, and an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. Now here's a context that we must consider at the same time. Here we have the same word that we have waiting for us in Colossians chapter 3. I'll just read the verse, drive in mind. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall he also appear with him in glory. That word appear. Those of you who have been with us during this series of studies will remember that we spent some time on the Greek word parousia. I won't go over that ground again except to remind you that it means the personal presence and particularly the advent of a king. We have records still that have come down from antiquity of the very word parousia being used for the personal presence of a king and all the Uh, things that were done to provide entertainment when that took place. The parousia coming was usually the coming of a king. Now we have a different word entirely. The moment you come to this section of the the teaching, this middle part where the um, prison ministry obtains, you drop the word parousia You'll never find the apostles speaking of the second coming of Christ and the hope of the Church. In Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, or the other epistles of that period, he never uses the word parousia, Whereas, it was used in Matthew 24, it's used in 1 Corinthians 15, it's used in the epistles of John, it's used in James, it's used in Peter. It was a universal word. Now it's entirely put aside, and another word takes its place. And that other word is this word translated appearing. There must be a reason why the Spirit of God has so put one word aside and picked up another. Now this particular word appearing, in our language, to appear, has a sort of movement about it. We suddenly appear. But you want to remember, it's not the person who appears, it's that he's made to appear because of the light that shines the suggestion is that Christ now is at the right hand of God and is not seen by anybody. But this manifestation in glory, this epiphania, this shining upon, is going to be the first move in what we call the second coming. Strictly speaking, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but strictly speaking, our hope is not the second coming, but our hope is our going. Because before ever he leaves the glory, before ever he comes to the air, or his feet stand upon the Mount of Olives, before ever that move takes place, the moment Christ stands up in the glory, the moment the clock, as it were, struck the hour, when the second coming is about to take place, the very first move of all is that we shall be manifested with him. There. Of course the question is immediately asked, How do we get there? And the answer is, none of us know. And it's not a matter of revelation. What I'm glad about is that he's undertaken it, and I'll leave it with him. Because if I had instructions, and I missed my way, it'd be far better not to know, wouldn't it? We are to be manifested with him. That's our blessed hope. Well, now we come on to this passage in Timothy again. You'll notice that this is associated with a similar calling to that which with, with which we connect Ephesians. Ephesians takes us back to a period before the foundation of the world. Well, this doesn't use the word foundation of the world, but it goes back to the same period. It says, its own purpose and grace that were given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Although the word Here is different. This is before the times of ages. We are back behind all other statements of scripture so far as distance is concerned. Chosen before the overflow or foundation of the world, chosen in him before time began. Now he says, he has been manifested, it has been manifested by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ so, you see, he uses this word, appearing, of his first coming. And he uses it in the same epistle in the next chapter, the one, chapter four, of his second coming. It's this appearing, this coming into light, The appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light. Brought it to light, shed light upon it. So we've got this emphasis upon the idea of the epiphaniah and the light shining. And then one more point before we leave this package. Where I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. Because he's dealing with this particular calling and associating with this calling this particular aspect of hope. We come back then to Colossians chapter 3, and we read once more, when Christ, who is our life, not Christ, who is going to bring our life with him, not Christ, who has purchased life, but Christ is our life. As we learn the teaching of these scriptures, and particularly the epistles of this great apostle Paul, we discover that that Christ is all, and in all it says so in Colossians. He said earlier in writing to the Corinthians, always said, Christ is made unto us wisdom, and righteousness, and sanctification, as well as redemption. If you have Christ, you have all things. So, here's life included. When Christ, who is our life, Oh, friends, I can never lose this, can I? Unless Christ himself can be this late in the universe. And that's utterly impossible. When Christ, who is our life, should be manifested, then shall we be manifested with him in glory. In glory. Because it may mean just gloriously. But inasmuch as he's going to be manifested in the air, and he's going to be seen on the Mount of Olives, We believe it as it stands, that he is now in glory, and we are to be manifested with him there. Let us now turn to another of these passages, where we have this emphasis upon the word epiphaniah, the appearing, this time the epistle written to Titus. The epistle written to Titus. (laughs) I mentioned just earlier, that there's hardly a passage in the New Testament where the second coming of Christ is introduced as a subject for itself. Even Matthew 24. The second coming of Christ was introduced by the Apostle in answer to the amazed statement of the disciples. Well, how is it possible that there will be no stone left upon another? Look at the building of this temple. And as a consequence of that, he said, oh, well, there'll time come when there won't be. This house is going to be left desolate, and then he speaks about his second coming to the earth. So now Titus, the key word of Titus is the word works, and he alternates good works, which are to be uh, followed, and good works which are to be repudiated. Which how could that be? Well. If you're making good works the basis of your salvation, that's an error. But if after you're saved, there are no good works to manifest that you've got life, well, that also will be a tragedy. So we've got the two, and you'll see them brought together in chapter 3. Here we have. Verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. But then you look only a few verses down until we get to verse 8. This is a faithful saying, And these things are a will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. So it's not by works, but it leads to good works. And you've got it already written for you in Ephesians chapter 2. Where again it says, Not by works, but unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Well, now we're going to look at chapter 2 of Titus. And here we have the second coming of Christ in a most practical context. Will you notice? Verse 1. Speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. That's not teaching sound doctrine. But that's saying things which are in harmony with it. That's practice. And then he gives a word to the aged men. What sort of people they're going to be. And the aged women. What they have to do. And then he speaks in verse 4 about the young women. And then he speaks about the young men in verse 6. It's all practice. Sound speech, he says in verse 8, that cannot be condemned. Now he has a word to servants. Verse 9. And servants in those days, they didn't have wages boards and unions and time off. They were slaves. And yet, to those slaves, the Apostle has given some of the highest teaching in the Scriptures. And this is what he says to them. Exhort slaves to be obedient unto their own masters, but to please them well in all things. Not answering again, not purloining, so you say, you don't mean to tell me that these little petty foggy things are all associated with the glorious second coming of Christ they are, friends. Teddy-fogging things there may be, but they're a part of God's purpose that they shouldn't be practiced by those who believe Him. Not answering again. I wonder how many servants today would line up to this. Why, it's a part of the right of everybody, isn't it, a bad answer? Oh, yes. And then, what about purloining? Well, we don't call it purloining. We call it scrounging. Or we call it knocking off or we call it winning, we call it anything except the right word, and so blunt our consciences. Said the Apostle, if you believe Christ and you're looking for him, you'll neither that answer, neither will you annoy But show him all good fidelity, that they may adorn, here it comes, adorn the doctrine, not in any measure trying to manufacture the doctrine, or to bolster up the doctrine, but just to make it something that's presentable, something which is acceptable, like you commend it by your conduct. Adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour in all things. Now I'm going to step through the next few verses to lift out the one sentence. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. It doesn't merely save us. The grace of God which saves us, teaches us that we should live, looking. All the rest of it is explanatory. We are saved so that we should live looking. But live looking for what? That we should live looking for that blessed hope. Here we back again in Colossians. Seek, set, your mind is occupied here. You should live looking. You mustn't walk with your head in the air so much as you don't see where you're going. He must be very, very practical, as these Christians must have been. But their affections were on things above. They were looking. Looking with expectancy. Looking for something. And it's called that blessed hope. Now what is that blessed hope? It's the glorious appearing. Strictly speaking, keeping to the order of the words, the appearing of the glory. As we said earlier, Christ at this present moment is veiled. Whether any in the heavenly realms actually see the seated Son of God, we do not know. But we know a day is coming when he's going to be manifested in glory. And we manifested with him. And it says here that that constitutes our blessed hope. The appearing or the manifestation of the glory of the great God and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. You'll find this word, Saviour, occurs six times in this epistle. And three times it speaks of God himself, and three times it speaks of Christ, giving the title, sometimes to God in the absolute sense, and sometimes to Christ in the salvation sense. So it says here, there's no statement in the whole word of God that God, in the absolute sense, is going to be manifested and going to appear but Christ is going to be manifested, and Christ is going to appear, and he is the great God and Savior for whom we are waiting. I goes on to tell us a, more, a little bit more what he did. Who gave himself for us. Don't you see? This, this emphasis upon the second coming is all wrapped up with the most glorious doctrine and the most equally wonderful practice. And so it ever should be. Not be a speculative piece of argument who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were marked as being God's peculiar people. And here, the the, uh, title is used of this company, while Israel themselves are in their blindness. And this particular word, is an echo from a passage which we have <coughs> in the last book of the Old Testament. It says, Then they that feared the Lord spake on often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard. And the book of remembrance was written before him. And they shall be mine, said the Lord, in that day when I make up my jewels, that's this peculiar people, the peculiar treasure of God. So we may living in a day when we have to meet together and speak often one to another, and assuredly the Lord hearkens and hears, and a book of remembrance is written before him. Very wonderful, the King's that there in glory. Some angel, principality, or power, has got the office of putting down another meeting at the chapel of the open book, another opportunity of thinking upon his name, another time when always oh, is it possible that he's been pleased to notice those who come and hear the subject that's been so trailing and falsely presented, yet with good intention to glorify Him. It looks as though it may be. Peculiar people. Because course, you mustn't be peculiar people in the other thing. We haven't got to be oddities because we believe Christ. We've got to be those who are clothed and in our right mind. But we shall be called peculiar people enough by the others without asking for it, if we seek to walk worthy of this high and holy calling. So we have brought before us, in several of the passages, the special word, the special aspect of the second coming of Christ, as it belongs to the church of the one body, the church of the mystery. We've already looked at the fact that he's coming to the earth, and he's coming to sit upon the throne of his father David, he's coming as the king, and there that part of the promise of God will be fulfilled. We've also seen... That he is to be associated with the heavenly aspect of those Old Testament promises, That Abraham, who had the land of Palestine given to him, nevertheless looked for a heavenly country, a heavenly city, and in the book of the Revelation that is associated with a bridal company. And Christ is coming to them and for them. But the church of Ephesians cannot possibly be the bride, for Ephesians says that their goal is to be the perfect man. And there's no possibility of mistaking it for that particular word translated man in the next chapter is translated husband. So we have three here. We have a kingdom on the earth. We have a bride in the New Jerusalem. We have the perfect man in the glory. And the hope of each one of those and any other intermediaries there may be it's the person, the actual person of Christ but associated with all these elements that go to make up the different phases of his calling. Now, there are many other things we may have to pursue when we're going over this subject, but we want to round it all like that so that those who have this recording may have just a little concise presentation before them of the three fears of blessing and the second coming of Christ as it relates to them all. And may we not push aside lightly and as without consequence the many practical issues which the scriptures have associated with this calling. If you and I are looking for this blessed hope, let be to it that we seek to adore that doctrine of God our Saviour in all things, that we seek to walk worthy of such a calling, and one day to exchange all the frailties of this present life, all the annoyances, all the inconveniences of skip lighting, for a day which As the scripture says, we know not what we shall be, but blessed be God we know one thing. We shall be like Him, and we shall be with Him. May the Lord be pleased to grant that those of us who sit here during this meeting, and those distant friends whom we may not meet until we meet in this manifestation in glory, that we may give a better for the exposition of His wondrous word on our pilgrim journey through time and this present as well.